0: Let's turn with you now to our sermon text in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, starting from verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we pray that you would arrange our thoughts, that you would mold our thinking, that all imaginations of our own sinful hearts, all traditions of man, all imitations of the world, around us would cease and desist, and that we would be instructed by your word, by this word, indeed this holy law which you inscribed with your own own hand on tablets of stone, forever a testimony and transcript of your own moral perfections, and that we ourselves might learn, and particularly the way that you are to be worshipped. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 The last time we began our journey through the moral law of God, also known as the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, uh, as we considered the first commandment, and tonight we come to the second commandment. Now, I've mentioned that these are really closely related commandments, but they are also fully distinct. We have to be able to do that, you know, in, in God's church. There are many things that are very closely related. In fact, all things are in various ways interrelated. But they're also distinct, and if we do not understand and do not grasp how we can do both of those things, then we're never going to get it right. And I say that because the idea that these are distinct commandments are this is a disputed point in the history of the church. Let me just read to you the Roman Catholic Ten Commandments. One: I, the Lord, am your God; you shall not have other gods beside me. Two. You shall not take the name of the Lord God in vain. Three, remember to keep holy the Lord's day. Skip down to nine. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Ten, you shall not covet your neighbor's goods. What's missing? What's missing? No mention of images whatsoever. None. Why? Well, because, I mean, even charitably speaking, we could say other things, but charitably... The use of images are so integral to their worship they could not imagine that God would forbid them. And so they figure and, and, and reason that this mention of, of prohibition of images just must be an elaboration of the first commandment's prohibition against worshiping false gods. And, of course, this is just a blatant example of taking the word of God and misusing it and forcing Scripture to fit our own traditions and preconceptions. Let me explain the way it is. The first commandment. You know, the first table is supremely important, and therefore everything concerning God has some sort of uh, mention, at least in principle, in, in this first table. The first commandment specifies the who of worship. There is a possibility of other gods, but they're prohibited. You're not to have them around at all. You only have the one true and living God. That is the object of your worship. The second commandment is about the, the how of worship. Right? Not only that you worship the one true and living God, but the way that you worship because he cares about it. And actually, this this commandment extends beyond just images. That's the most direct thing. But it's a blanket prohibition against any unauthorized worship of the one true and living God. Now, it focuses most directly on that one thing which sinful man loves to use in worship. This is all times, all places, whether of false gods, pure idolatry, gross idolatry, or whether in their false a way of worshiping the one true and living God, and that is, that's is—that's images. And friends, the Roman Catholics love their images. No wonder they deleted this command entirely. The Eastern Orthodox love their images. And all false religion loves their images. And beloved, the Reformation was a reformation of worship as much as it was a reformation of theology and doctrine. And it had so much to do with righting this wrong and saying, no, there is a second commandment. And of expelling images from the worship of God. It's not the first time this happened. You look back at the Old Testament and what is it? When they have a reformation, what is it about? Friends, it's about the reformation of worship. It's about getting rid of images. That it doesn't take, no one has to read a book on, on images, it just flows out of their wicked hearts. The golden calf incident, friends, it was not that they were making up some new God. You have to understand what was happening there. They wanted a representation of the God that they knew, okay? That was the issue. They didn't make up some new God in their own imagination. They were going to worship Yahweh, the Lord. But they're going to use an image because that's what occurred to their own wicked hearts to do. And that is this default setting of the human heart to always use images in worship. And reformation has to do with getting rid of them. And this, this commandment has to do with getting rid of them. Now, friends, as I travel around the various churches here and abroad, let me say that 500 years later, it looks like we're about ready for another reformation. Because there are many churches... And I do not mean to say those who are fundamentally at odds with us. I mean to say that there are churches who would claim really to be some level of reformed churches who are so addicted to worship, or to images, whether in the worship service or in Sunday school, that they cannot, they literally cannot imagine being without those kind of images. How could they possibly teach children without images of Christ how could they possibly uh, have a relevant worship service on the Lord's day without the use of some sort of images on a projector screen friends that is the world that we live in today and that's what this commandment is about God actually cares about the way we worship him he is not indifferent about that of that we can be absolutely sure and if we know that then it behooves us to make as sure as possible that we are doing precisely what he wants us to now, just a reminder of the larger picture as we're going through these commandments. We're not just doing them in, in isolation. We're doing them, yes, because these are the rule of life for God's people, and we want to be obedient to them. But in all this, we don't lose fact of the sight that no one can keep, perfectly keep God's law, and that it is continually, whether we're not yet believers or whether we're longtime believers, it is continually bringing us back to Christ because it is only through him that we can be made right before God. Well tonight is the second commandment and the points are extremely simple you shall not make images to because the Lord is a jealous God. that's it but as usual the bulk of the sermon really is in the application section and I'll just actually read out the four applications because there's so, such a part of the sermon. duties required of which are eight, sins forbidden of which are seven, uh, the larger principle meaning the regulative principle, And fourthly and finally, word-based worship in an image-based culture. Children, I'm sorry if you're going to have a tough time, but let's just make it a challenge to see if you can remember all that. The two points and the four applications. You shall not make images because the Lord is a jealous God. And then the applications, duties required, sins forbidden, the larger principle. And finally, word-based worship in an image-based culture. Well, you shall not make images. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. And let's just stop right there. Because the first and primary prohibition is not actually of the worshipping of said images. And meaning, we understand, of course, that the, the image has to do is in the context of an image that is meant to represent God. Now, that's been mistaken in times past. There have been those who think, for instance, you couldn't take a picture of people or something like that. No, quite obviously in this context and rightly understood comparing Scripture with Scripture, it means some kind of image meant to represent God. And in, in the context of the second commandment, meaning to represent the one true and living God, actually. And he says... And the commandment is don't make it, right? It's it has to do with a mere formation of some means of religious worship which has not been commanded by God. Okay, so it's not that the 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 prohibition, the sin comes when you actually bow down and worship it. The sin comes just by making it. Okay, so let's let's give an example just so you understand what I'm saying because some would say, oh well. You know, we can make images of Christ as long as we don't use them to worship. As long as we're not bowing down before them, it's fine to have images of Christ. I'll give you an example. Let's imagine that one of you, I, I go to a pastoral visitation, and I go to your house, and there's there's a, a, a one of your rooms has kind of been, uh, is you know, I see there's lots of changes in it, and I go in and I open the door, and there's a crucifix, a big crucifix with with Christ on it. And there's an altar, and and all the rest of these images. Maybe there's an image of Mary and so forth. I say, what is this? And you say, oh no, I'm not. I, I don't. I, I don't use that to worship. I, I've never even. After I completed the room, I closed it. I've never even been in there again. Well, why did you make it? Don't you don't you think that maybe your your children would walk in there and be and be tempted to worship? Well, no, it doesn't matter. I mean, that's my Christian liberty. I can make that kind of image as long as I don't actually worship it but friends you understand that the production of something that has a use entails responsibility entails that 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 sin that goes along with the potential use of it and therefore in God's wonderful perfect law of which nothing can be added or taken away the primary prohibition is simply making it because God knows that inevitably in the course of time it will be misused There is no right use of an image of God. Can I say that again? You know, sometimes we say misuse does not take away use. That's true. But friends, there is no legitimate use for any image of God. And the mere making of it is itself sinful. I mentioned the golden calves in the introduction. Again, you say, uh, I just want to reiterate, this was not about the intentional creation of false gods. It was about the false worship of God. The true god because let me read it in exodus 32 4 he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned this is aaron moses's brother he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf where's the sin right then right then then he said this is your god o israel that brought you out of the land of egypt he's not saying this is baal He's saying, here's a rep you really really want to worship God using a representation of him, okay, fine, as long as you're not headed going to some other God, that's fine, but here's, here's a representation of the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, "Tomorrow is a feast to Baal." What did he say? "Tomorrow' is a feast to the Lord, okay? The idolatry which so angered the Lord had nothing to do with a false god it had to do with a image used to worship himself Okay, shall not make images now the lord goes through the list of all the possibilities of the kinds of images that we might in our foolishness decide to make heaven above earth beneath under the water we need to be reminded, of course, that not only do we have no eye, uh, uh, well, you know, that we dare not try to make God in our image is quite the other way, isn't it? Um, God made us in his image. And how terrible and how much of rebellion is it that we try to make God in our image or the image of anything that we can see that God has made. Let me say also that it's fundamentally impossible, right? You know, First Timothy 6.15 says, which he will manifest in his own time, who is a blessed and only potentate, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. What kind of image are you going to make that's true? What's going to be a real representation of himself? He dwells in unapproachable light. No man has seen, no man can see. Each and every image is is guaranteed, is... Uh, is fundamentally a lie and that's why he prohibits it he prohibits it Matthew Henry says our religious worship must be governed by the power of faith not the power of imagination we understand as I'm going to say later on in our our application it's not going to be it cannot be based on images but about words because God in his wisdom has given us his word by which we truly can know him and not images which he says can only be lies and falsehoods you shall not make images secondly for i am a jealous god i the lord your god am a jealous god we have actually spoken of this last time so i won't belabor the point too much but it's important enough to certainly to reiterate that God is jealous and the fundamental reason again is not because this is useful to you there's no pragmatic rationale for why he, he could say because it will always be wrong but he doesn't really actually his rationale is just this I'm a jealous God don't do it and uh, you know this is uh, a jealousy sometimes we think of it as, as sinful jealousy sometimes we use it as a synonym for envy but that is not the case at all Rather, it's, it's, it's the, the, the right and just feeling of one who is in covenant with another, say a husband with a wife, when that wife is strayed to something else, when that wife is inclined into something false. And God, God experiences, of course we understand that he is he's not subject to passions as we are, but God manifests his jealousy when we turn aside from, from him to anything false, whether false gods or even false representations of himself. And again, you'd have to imagine the scenario of a husband. Yes, of course, the obvious situation of a wife going off with some other man. But what if the, the, uh, the husband were to find in the wife's possession some, some well worn pictures, and it's not him? And, and she says, Oh, well, it's supposed to be you. This is a representation of you. And you say, That's not me. And, and you are, you know, this is what you, you look at. This is what you, your, your feelings of love are attached to, and yet it's not even me. That's the way God feels when we create some image of him that's not him. And he says, don't do it, because he's jealous. He wants us all for himself, and when, he, when we think of him, when we worship him, he wants it to be in accordance with his truth of how he really is. He's not flattered when we make up some kind of representation, whether doctrinally or in terms of images that don't really reflect a true him, right? Inevitably, it's an unflattering portrayal, and he doesn't like it. Don't do it. So you shall not, as I say, I'm abbreviating this because we dealt with it last time, uh, the fact that God is jealous. But that's the rationale, okay? You shall not make images, for I am a jealous God. Now, the application, as I say, is the bulk of this. And let's begin now with the duties required in the larger catechism. Now, the larger catechism actually gives 23 duties. And I'm, of those, I've chosen just eight of them to focus on. The duties in the second commandment are A, the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God hath instituted in his word. We have a whole separate application having to do with the regular principle, but let me say the key is this, the emphasis is this, it's instituted in the Word of God. And friends, we never get beyond that, never, ever, ever. In all of our worship, are one, our sole concern must be, how does this accord with the Word of God? Any idea of what the culture is doing, any idea of what might bring us church growth, any idea of of well, any of those kind of things has no place whatsoever in our consideration, but purely what does God say in his word? B, the reading, preaching, and hearing of the word. Did you know that's part of your second commandment duties? Absolutely. You, when you honor God's word, you honor God, because that's the true representation. It's not images. It's not images. It's words, his word. And that's why it's so misguided to want to diminish the role of the Word of God in the, in the worship service. And let me say, that's another trend in the contemporary church. They just reduce and reduce the amount of the Word of God. They get rid of reading, they abbreviate or eliminate it entirely. And it's more and more given to so-called worship in terms of, of music, in terms of a concert. And they diminish the, 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 the role of the Word of God. Well, so what? What if you did eliminate every mention of the Bible, every aspect of the service, since worldly people find it so tiresome to hear the word of God? And we know that they do. They find it tiresome. If you manage to get a thousand people to come to this church next week because I promised to get rid of the word of God, exactly what would we do here? Would we be honoring the one true and living God? The opposite. The opposite. You understand how that is, right? Because what we're doing here is worshiping the one true and living God, and this is how he has revealed himself to us. And inasmuch as we get rid of the word of God, we get rid of God. And I don't know what we're doing, but we're not worshiping the one true and living God at that point. The Word is also, let me say again, I'll reiterate this in the final application, but the word is necessary to bring us to a place of intelligent spiritual worship. You don't just show up and start worshiping. Your mind must be filled with true thoughts concerning the attributes and nature and works of our God, you see. Well, that's B. C, the administration and receiving of the sacraments. Um, You know, I I mentioned some other time when people say, how's the worship at such and such church? They never mean uh, prayer, for instance. They never, and, and typically they don't mean preaching. But they never, ever mean the Lord's Supper. They never, ever mean the sacraments. But, friends, the sacraments are absolutely part of the worship of God, the true worship of God. D, church, government, and discipline. Who would have thought of that? Right? Church, government, and discipline. What does church, government, and discipline have to do with the second commandment? Well, notice in 1 Corinthians 5. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit... With the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one. This is the one who is committing uh, uh, terrible sexual immorality, um, incest, really. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, that excommunication is happening in the worship service on the Lord's day. And therefore, it is an element of worship. Thankfully, not an element of worship that happens every day, but absolutely an element of worship that was commanded, commanded in the word of God. And beyond that element of the actual excommunication happening in the worship service, we have church government and discipline precisely to uphold and keep pure all the other elements of worship. Apart from these things, you don't have a pure sacrament. You don't have a pure preaching of the word of God. And therefore, if God is to be worshipped rightly, there must be right church government and discipline. D. That was D. E, the ministry and maintenance thereof. Who conducts worship? Not worship leaders, whatever those are. I don't see those in the word of God. The minister conducts worship. And how are they enabled to do that? They're trained, ordained, and maintained by the church. Trained, ordained, and maintained by the church. And inasmuch as we fail to do any part of that, we fail to contribute, we, ne- we neglect our second commandment duties, you see. And maybe that's some way to think about the huge investment and commitment our church has to Westminster Presbyterian Theological Seminary, for instance. Maybe we should file that under heading of zeal for the worship of God. Because the best way to make sure that God is worshipped in purity in accordance with his word is to train, ordain, and maintain ministers who are going to do it right. And friends, I need not tell you that there aren't hundreds of seminaries in this country turning out tens of thousands of ministers who are committed to the regular principle. There aren't many, and we have a vital role to play in that. That was E.F., religious fasting. There is still such a thing, and it is lawful and useful for Christians to do it as part of our second commandment duties. G, as also the disapproving, detesting, and opposing all false worship. All right? So on the one hand, we are, are we must preserve these things and, and do them. But even under our positive uh, requirements, according to the second commandment, we disprove, we detest, we oppose all false worship. And so I, I just want to say here, as I did on the sermon in Deuteronomy in this commandment, when people speak dismissively about worship wars and say, you know, let's just get through that, these matters of taste, individual taste and culture, and let's focus on what's really important. Friends, God doesn't think that way, all right? It, it is part of our, our duty under the second commandment to disapprove that which is false. We cannot rightly experience or know about false worship of God, ways that that he has not commanded take them indifferently we can't do that that's that's not right you're breaking the ten commandments if you experience a worship service that is utterly contrary to the word of god without any kind of reaction okay at least in our hearts we should detest these things and in accordance with our roles and offices to do something about it to reform it okay disapproving detesting and opposing all false worship and H according to each one's place and calling, removing it and all monuments of idolatry. Yeah, that's, that's part of this commandment. People so often they speak disparagingly of the Puritans as being anti-art and Philistines and all the rest of it. Beloved, they were not anti-art. Some pretty good artists among them. They were anti-idolatry. Anti-idolatry. And when we go... As we sometimes go to Durham Cathedral, which may be the most beautiful building in the U.K., if not all of Europe. We see those beheaded statues and all the rest of it. I, I hope we don't go, oh, those misguided forefathers of ours. Uh, now, I recognize that there's a complex story there. But for the few of them that, that lost their heads because of their de- decision to, to uphold uh, the purity of worship uh, well, that was the right decision for the others. Well, you know I, I leave that as it may, but wherever in fact you know, now we don 't have uh, the cathedral has not been given to us, nor any other building at this point, but one day, if we were given such a building, it would be our duty to make sure that there are not images that would be that would be a temptation for people to use in religious worship. Well, that was the, um, the positive duties required. Let's move on secondly to the sins forbidden. The first is all devising, counseling, commanding, using, and anywise approving any religious worship not instituted by God himself. Okay, so that includes smoke machines. In as, mu- as much as it ever included incense, which was kind of the old version of the smoke machine. It includes various new measures that's done in the name of evangelism because why? They're done in the worship service. That's why we have to be really careful about new measures. You say, well, I'm not. it's not really about worship. It's about evangelism. But guess what? If it's happening in the worship service, it's part of the worship service. So when Finney, for instance, sat down and, and thinks about how he's able to make these new revivals, manufacture revivals using all the latest 19th century technology, and he comes up with the idea of the Anxious Bench, he was already in violation of the second commandment. Did you know that? Already. Why? Because he was devising an element of religious worship that was not commanded by God. And you're not even supposed to do that much. Let alone are you to institute it. But you're not even to, to devise such measures. That's A. B. Tolerating a false religion. We should Just consider that although the world considers tolerance to be the sole remaining virtue and intolerance the sole remaining sin, That is not so in the word of God. It's not so. C, making any representation of God, of all or any of the three persons, either inwardly in our mind or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever. And let's do that. Let's stop there and speak again of pictures of Christ. Friends, our confession, our catechism here makes it very clear that images of Christ are prohibited. I recognize that the larger evangelical church does not care. I recognize that there are all kinds of publishing houses that have a decent reputation that produce these things and sell them by by the millions. And I know that there are those who would make all kinds of rationale to say that these are good and useful things, to say, well, you know, young children, they just they don't think in abstract terms. The only way you can possibly teach him anything is by using pictures. And therefore, we have to have images of Christ. My friends, let's not try to be wiser than God. You understand that all things necessary for faith, not only of ourselves, but our children, he has given us. All right. And if he, he knows, he, he knows our feeble frame. He created us. And he is able to use these things for salvation. The word of God works not on a purely rational... Look, when I preach this, I'm not expecting everyone to get it at the same level. But I'm expecting when I, when I preach, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Not only that there is an element of, of understanding with the mind, but God through the Holy Spirit is working at a supernatural level to use his own word to bring even young children to salvation. And, friends, we don't need to imagine, therefore, that we have to do something contrary to God's law in order to accomplish some goal of evangelism. No representation of any of the three persons. D, the making of any representation of feigned deities and all worship of them. E, all superstitious devices. Now, most would know about these superstitions, but let's make sure we're not doing any of these things superstitions like fearing black cats or pinching salt or caring about whether you go under ladders or all these kind of things these are elements of idolatrous worship and should not be done among us Uh, f corrupting the worship of god in various ways and g all neglect contempt hindering or opposing the worship and ordinances which god has given other the proof text the proof text for this last one that I'm mentioning, this seventh of the ones that I'm focusing on, the proof text is Exodus 4:24 to 26, and it has to do with Moses. Moses himself, the great prophet and leader of God's people, a type of Christ, had somehow neglected to circumcise his son in accordance with God's commandment, the Old Testament sign of the covenant, and the Lord took that with great seriousness. Well, those are the sins forbidden. Let's now consider, briefly, the larger principle, which is the regulative principle. It's summed up in Deuteronomy chapter 12, and particularly in verse 32, whatever I command you, and the context is worship, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. Now, obviously, that's contrasted with anarchy, doing whatever you feel like doing. But it's also contrasted with what we call the normative principle, By which we can worship whatever way that is not prohibited by scripture. Right? Now that's the going rate. 90 some percent, probably 99% of the churches you will ever encounter have some version of the normative principle. uh, In which, look, if it's not specifically prohibited, then it's okay. But that's not what we believe. That's not what the word of God teaches in Deuteronomy 12 where it very specifically says, I don't want you to imitate the way the world worships. I forbid you from doing it. And I don't want you to, to dream up something in your brains of how you're going to worship. I want you to only do it precisely the way that I command you to do it, positively command. And if it's not commanded by Scripture, then we should not do it. Now, Calvin gives us two good reasons for why our worship should be regulated in the necessity of reforming the church One is that it tends greatly to establish his authority, that we don't follow our own pleasure but depend entirely on his sovereignty. And let me say it this way. If what we're attempting to do is to worship our king, how crazy and how disparate is it and incongruous is it for us to say we're going to worship our king? when we ourselves have decided the way we want to worship him. He says, hey guys, I want you to worship using these particular things. (laughs) You know, well, that's outmoded. I'm going to worship you this way, and I'm sure you'll be pleased with it. He's not going to be pleased with it, right? He's displeased with that. And it belies, well, it, it demonstrates the lie and the hypocrisy in our hearts when we say, I'm here to worship. But in reality, we are just here to please ourselves. If for no other reason, the very idea that our worship should be selfless and other-oriented, and it should be done in humility and, and dependence, and we surely do so in accordance with his instructions and not anything having to do with ourselves. The second reason is that such is our folly, that when we are left at liberty, all we are able to do is go astray. Now, in our pride, we don't think so. In our pride, we think, actually, give me some time and some space, and I'll come up with some great new ways of worshiping God. Calvin knows himself and probably you better than than you do. He knows human nature and he says, in accordance with the word of God, friend, all you're ever going to do is, is go astray. And it's not safe to do anything apart from what God has commanded. No. Let me say that this concept, which we call the regulative principle, this concept means that God not only cares about the end goal of worshiping Him, but also the means by which we worship Him. That concept is so foreign that it's not even to be comprehended by, by many in the church today. But the principle, I want to say, is inherent to Scripture. That is not just with worship, but with, with everything else. God not only cares about the end product, but the way that we get there. What's the obvious example here that I'm going to mention? The, 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 ministry, the, uh, the mission of the church. God does not just tell us, go and make disciples and do it however you want to. He not only cares about the end product of there being disciples, he cares about the means also glorifying him and us doing in accordance with the way, the means of grace that he's given us to. And the same thing goes with ethics. All right. He's commanded us, sure enough, go, be fruitful and multiply. And there are some, again, claiming to be Reformed Christians who would say, then cloning must be a great idea. If all God cares about is, is you being fruitful and multiplying, well, well, great. Well, there's your means right there. Go clone. But God cares about the means as well, you see. He doesn't just care about the outcome without respect to the way you get there. He cares about it all. It's all, and he is glorified. In the whole aspect of the way it's done. Well, that's the regulative principle. We only do what God commands because he cares not only about the end product but also about all the way that we get there. Fourthly and finally, we need to be committed to a word-based worship in an image-based culture. People ask, how can we have relevant worship when everything is so image-based these days and we don't like images, we don't do images? Friends, it's nothing new. That's not a new, unprecedented crisis. People who want to corrupt and change the church are always inventing some new, unprecedented crisis. If you read church history, you see it's not the first time this has happened. There's an unprecedented crisis every ten years. And it's always the rationale that somebody uses to change something about the church and to distort it. All right, It's not unprecedented. That is precisely the situation of the church on the eve of the Reformation and if you were to ask you go into a Roman Catholic Church in the medieval times maybe in, in, in Luther's, Luther's Germany and there are all these images images everywhere and all the stained glasses are image, image, image and you say why? God hasn't mentioned a single thing about images he said don't do it he prohibits it why? Say, oh yeah I know that's a great theory but these people are ignorant they don't know how to read they don't understand the word of God because we you know we preach in latin but we, so the only way that they're going to be taught is if we have pictures for them rather than let's throw ourselves into the education of these people rather than let's preach in the language of the people and let's study on making it understandable and comprehensible. And let's educate our people. Let's have education in our homes and in the whole course of, of their existence on earth in order that they might know these things. Now we're just going to have to have pictures. Friends, we don't need to fall into that. Now, I have to understand that uh, we were word-based. This culture was word-based. After the Reformation and the reformation that took place in this nation, particularly in Scotland, they went from paint, painting their faces blue to being the most educated people on the face of the earth in the course of a single generation. All right, And for a good long while, the culture in these islands was word-based. I recognize that as we have turned away from, the, from God and his word, that is reversed, and we're back to being image-based. But that is no reason at all for us to change our ways but rather we walk in faith. God knows what he's doing. He's able to work through the word. He knows that. And you know what? We we do it knowing that the saving message is something given in words and not in images. I've never met anyone who was truly saved because they saw some image. Have you? I don't think so. God's promises are attached to, to words, you see. John 17, eight, For I have given to them the words which you have given me. Christ himself said that. He did not say the images, the words. And, friends, we do it knowing that there is only one image of the invisible God, and that is Jesus Christ. And he is the one that worship, we worship. He is the one that we point people to. He is the Savior by which, if he is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself, the only true image of the living God. We walk by faith, not by sight. Therefore, we worship through words, and not images. Let's pray. Invisible God, Heavenly Father, Holy Creator of all, we recognize, Lord, that you have made all sorts of things. You have made the creatures of the sea, the creatures of the land, the creatures of the air. And yes, Lord, you have even made man and woman, male and female. You made them in your own image. Lord, this is your prerogative. We recognize that we dare not try to make you or to liken you to any image of things that you've made or things that we make in our own wicked Imagination and hearts. Lord, we confess that truly our default settings are very averse and different than the way that you have set up things. We pray that we would receive in faith that which you've done and in submission, in true worship, a true spirit of worship among us, that we would desire only what you desire, that we worship you only the ways that you have instituted. This indeed, Lord, would be a great mark of our church. As we pray also for the larger church and ask that you might bring a great work of reformation and revival in this day. And ask, Lord, that you would be glorified and that we would be motivated by a zeal to see you worshipped rightly according to your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.